We've got about three sermons left in the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to do chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 today, and then we're going to have a three-week break, and then we'll come back and we'll finish up the last two. Um, Today, we really kind of get to what Paul has been driving at and seeking to produce in Timothy over the last few weeks of our looking at this book together. You see, Paul's ministry is coming to an end. It, it's it's going to stop. He's let Timothy know that. He's been building Timothy up. He's been uh, writing Timothy and saying, these are the things you need to focus on in your ministry. These are the things you don't need to worry about. These are the things that you need to make the main focus of your ministry. And you really just need to, to not be upset by these things that are happening over here, heresies and whatnot. You move and you found your ministry on the word of God and you trust God to be faithful and and recognize that this other stuff is going to happen, Timothy, but for you is to endure, for you is to stay the course. Um, Something my dad drove into me a long time and probably it's because we moved so frequently. Uh, if, If you know a little bit about my past, the longest I've ever lived anywhere is four years, and I've only done that once, and it was from age three to age seven. And so I'm looking to break that record. But about every three years, we would move countries. Now, when I was in the second grade, I went to three different schools, and my dad had three different jobs, all with the same company. But one of the things that he continually told my brother and I was, it, it really doesn't matter how you begin a job, because what people will remember about you is how you finish a job. Because at some point, you are going to leave, you're going to die, or they're going to leave. And when people reflect back upon your time there, they're going to say, I don't really remember much about the way he started, but man, when it got to the end, he quit all over the place. I mean, I've got a, a friend of mine who recently had one of his staff members who had been on church for a long time come to him and say, man, I am, I am moving on. And my friend was inwardly rejoicing but outwardly consoling. He said, oh, that's so sorry. Inwardly, he was you know, doing backflips and all this type of thing. And then he started working with this guy, and the guy said, I'm gonna leave, but it's gonna be a month until I leave. And he said, okay, man, I think that's a good transition time. Man, over the next month, this guy just, he quit coming into work. He quit preparing. He started being lazy because he looked at it, and he said, what are they gonna do, fire me? I've got a month left. I've been here for 30 years. I'm untouchable. I know when I worked at Southwestern, and I, would, I employed a lot of college students um, when I was there, and when I would hire college students, I told them, I said, look, you're not here to make a career out of being a catering server. You're not here to make a career out of being a barista. And I also saw the post office. I said, you're not here to make a career out of working in a copy center. You're here for a season. And this is what I expect out of employees. I expect you to be punctual. I expect you to work hard. And I expect you to work hard all the way up until the point where you no longer work for me. And as long as you do that, you and I will get along just great. And I'll give you a tremendous reference when you leave. But probably a quarter of the college students I employed, they come down to the end and, and they'd, they'd walk in and they'd give me like a Kleenex or something that had a notice and said, I'm leaving on this date. And I said, well, that's... That's certainly an interesting way to hand in your two weeks' notice. How about we try this again? You come back in tomorrow, and you give me an actual notice, and then we'll talk. And they were just floored. 
And I actually had one student say to me, he said, look, if you're going to be that way, I'll just quit today. And so we tried to drive into our employees. Look, it doesn't matter if you work for a Christian institution, you work for L3, you work for the bank, or you are staying at home and caring for your family. The way that you respond in life is a reflection of the gospel's impact and your submission to it in your life. Let me say that another way. It it, it doesn't matter if you're raising kids, raising orphans, on the mission field, working for a finance company, working for a bank, or digging ditches. The way that you work, the way you give energy to those things, the way you dedicate yourself to them should be a reflection of, the, of your submission to the gospel in your life. As you submit to the gospel, as you recognize Jesus calling you, and you give your life to him, you work hard. Why? To please your boss? No, to please Jesus. And when you come to the end of that time, you work hard all the way across the finish line. You work hard all the way. I would would tell my employees, I said, you work hard and you walk hard all the way until you get back to that car at the end of your shift. You get in your car, you turn on the radio, you listen to whatever you want, but you work hard all the way through that point. Paul gives us a picture of what it is like to have worked hard, to have dedicated himself consistently all the way to that point. You'll recognize that Paul is in a, a Roman jail. He is suffering. He is soon to die. And he is re- living over his life. And he's telling Timothy, these are the things I've done. So let me read 6 through 8 and then we'll walk through them together. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul opens up this passage, and he uses something that sounds a little familiar to us. You'll remember that as we studied through Philippians, Paul says something rather similar to the first part of verse 6. Here we read, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. But if you flip back over to Philippians chapter 2, in verse 17, what does Paul say? You'll remember that in Paul's first Roman imprisonment, he said this to them. Even, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul's consistent message was that the gospel was more important than his life. And so as he was suffering his first Roman imprisonment and he wrote to this church in Philippi and he said, look, it doesn't matter if I die. He said, look, if I I die, if I surrender my life, if, if God calls me home, then my sacrifice is for your benefit. My sacrifice is for your benefit. We recognize that Paul was released. He got out of prison. He went on to to do other trips, to visit other cities. And here he is at the end of his life. And he writes and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul reflected back on what had transpired previously in his life. And he saw himself as living a life of sacrifice to Jesus. And so when he was imprisoned, when he was beaten, when all of these things happened to him, it was Paul living a life of willing obedience and sacrifice to Jesus. But this is how Paul pictures his life now. 
Paul calls to mind this idea of sacrifice. And imagine if all of Paul's life is held in a glass. And as this glass is turned over, the liquid begins to pour out and it spills all over the base of the altar. And that's Paul's life. He said, this is, this is how I feel as I sit in prison. This is the reality of my situation, that my life is being poured out, that Paul knew that it was a matter of time before he would die, but he was living his life, even in the midst of imprisonment. He was living his life, even in the midst of a horrible, terrible, dark, dank prison. He was living his life as a joyous sacrifice to God. Man, as we reflect on those things that are difficult in our lives, we reflect on the loss that we, that we face. We reflect upon the hurt that we endure every week. We reflect upon those difficult times with our family during the week as we struggle with disease, as we struggle to make ends meet financially. And we ask ourselves, is my response to this one of bitterness or one of willing obedience? Am I willing to be a sacrifice for Jesus? Or am I embittered towards God when he calls me to the point of sacrifice? Paul poignantly writes in the second part of verse six and says, the time of my departure has come. Man, what a chilling word to hear from Paul. Timothy, called by Paul, shaped by Paul, traveled around with him. He looked to Paul as a spiritual father. You'll remember that Timothy's dad was not a Christian. And so Paul was to Timothy a spiritual father. And so Timothy gets this note. He knows Paul's situation. I'm sure to a certain degree he had hoped that Paul would escape this imprisonment just as he had the previous Roman imprisonment. But Paul writes and says, look, the time for my departure has come. And it is always hard to say goodbye to the people we love. It is always difficult to say goodbye to the people that we have worked with, the people that we have struggled with, the people that we have overcome difficulties with. And the word Paul uses in here, it, it, it paints the picture of a ship being in harbor and, and pulling back up its anchor and headed toward home. It paints the picture of soldiers on a battlefield coming to their tents and pulling up the pegs and rolling them up and headed home. Paul was headed home. In some sense, he was giving Timothy notice. Timothy, I'm headed home. Timothy, this is moving to you now. The weight, the responsibility, it rests squarely on your shoulders. This is why I've been pouring my life into you. It's not just because I thought you were a handsome guy and I, I like traveling around with you and you, you did a good job of... of of carrying the materials back and forth. Timothy, I poured my life into you so that you could carry on the ministry after me. One of the most difficult things in ministry is passing on responsibility to others, and Paul gives us a picture here of how to do it well. He's poured into Timothy. He's built him up. He's charged him, and now he is moving towards a gracious exit. 
He's not bitter that his time has come. He's not writing Timothy and saying, look, this is, this is how you need to continue to do your ministry as I have done mine. But he's writing Timothy and he's directing him back to the book. And he said, your ministry should line up with the book. Your ministry should line up with the Bible. He's giving Timothy a solid footing for how to transition. Well, what does Paul say? In describing his ministry, he says, I have fought the good fight. Now, if you have read much of Paul, you recognize that much of his life was spent in fighting, that much of his life was spent in arguing for his position. Paul would go, and, and just in the, as in the case of the Ephesians, Paul helped start that church. As in the case of the church in Philippi, Paul started that church. In, in Corinth, when they wrote to Paul and said, look, we've got some other teachers here, and they're, they, they speak a whole lot better than you do. Let's not say they speak good, but let's say they speak well. They speak a whole lot better than you do. And, and, and Paul had to write to them to extend a defense, in some sense, for his ability to speak truth into their lives. This is what it looks like to fight the good fight. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, starting around verse 22, he asked this question. He said, are they Hebrews speaking of those who would oppose him? So am I. He moves on. He says, are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he responds. He says, a better one. He says, I'm I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received from the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure and apart from other things. And listen to this. This is the heart of Paul. He described all this physical torment. He described all these super difficult things that he'd gone through. But listen to his heart. Verse 29, and apart from other things, there's my daily pressure. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You don't want to know what the fight was for Paul? In some sense, it was absolutely enduring all the physical stuff. But when Paul thought of the church in Ephesus, when Paul thought of the church in Philippi, when Paul thought of the church in Corinth, it tore at his soul. Because he saw people more preoccupied with with tertiary decisions, with, with, with minor things than being impacted, than being moved, than being persuaded that the gospel is the foremost thing they should give themselves to. He said, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul reflecting on all the people he'd come into contact with. You see, we we read through Philippians and you'll remember that Paul calls out those two guys. He calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander in Philippians. And, And we read that he handed them over to Satan so that might learn not to blaspheme. And maybe you read that and you say, man, that is so harsh. How could Paul hand over people in his own church? 
why would Paul say something so harsh to them? But do you hear his heart here in 2 Corinthians? See, Paul's heart is that when he sees people living in a life that is anything other than for the fullness of the gospel, it's wrecking him on the inside. He's in anguish. He's torn. If you want to see the physical of what that looks like, he is crying. He is crying out, God, why them? I mean, this is what a body looks like that does this well. Remember last week we talked about going to somebody that's sinning and and asking them to come out of that? The church body that does a good job. So we recognize that, that when Charles or when Steve or when Siri or when Ben or when anybody in this church is caught in sin, and we don't rejoice in the fact that we get to go to them and, and, and call out and potentially embarrass them. We are wrecked. We are destroyed. Not because of how awkward it's going to be for us to go to them, but because we recognize that the life they're living isn't honoring to God, that the life they're living isn't living up to the thing that they were called to. We long to see that brother, we long to see that sister restored. And so we follow the posture, we follow the position of Paul. We go to them and say, look, my heart breaks for you. You can't live this way. You can't, you can't do these things. And you're not making the argument and saying, look, you're doing damage to, to the body of Christ. You're embarrassing Ridgecrest. And all these things could be true. But your primary motivation as you start down that road is their restoration to Jesus. And that's what we should be known for. Because I guarantee you, we're going to have people fail. We're going to have people fall. We're going to have people trip. We're going to have people mess up. Because we're human, right? Anybody in here perfect? I saw a hand wave in the back. I'm going to assume that you're telling your kid to sit down. (laughs) Nobody in here is perfect. Man, I'm not perfect. Ben Collins certainly isn't perfect. Justin's close. He's got the beard, though, so that confuses me. Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to fight the good fight. And part of that, we recognize that it happens in community. It doesn't just happen individually. So it is pulling other people along. As we fight it out in ministry, as we fight it out in life, we're calling other people to the rally cry of the gospel. We're calling them to do that with us and to do that well. Paul says next, he says, look, I have finished the race. Now, the ESV renders this a little bit interesting. They they talk about this race and so maybe you're running in the, the Rafa run here in a few weeks and that's what you think about and it's this 5K and you've been training and, and really what that looks like is you've quit drinking Cokes for a couple of weeks and hoping that's gonna help you <clears throat> run that race. You might wanna just walk. Uh, if that's you, don't, don't, don't try and run, just walk. It's, it's not necessarily just this race he's talking about but it is this course that is set out and set before him. Uh, one of the shows that, that Bryce and I used to like to watch a whole lot together was Wipeout. And one of my favorite things on there, uh, that show's hilarious. And if you've never watched it with a two-year-old, I highly recommend it. But 
one of the things I like on there, they had this one where they were on the course and they had to scale the wall. You remember, they've got you know, this much of a footing to step on. They were about to get hit in the face or the stomach or somewhere else. It was about to get real awkward for them. And, 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 and they're scaling this wall and they're hugging this wall and all of a sudden, boom, in the stomach, boom, to the face and they're in the water. And I would laugh and I just thought, man, that's hilarious. There's no amount of money that would make me want to do that on national television, but I'm so glad they did. What Paul gives us a picture here is we are in this race, we are on this course of life. And as a Christian, there are things that can steer you off course. You start pursuing those things you want and opposed to those things God is calling you to. You've got this job opportunity that comes forward and it is for an insane amount of money. But you recognize it pulls you away from family, it pulls you away from church, it pulls you away from from the community that you've invested yourself in. Maybe this job opportunity, it's not what we might call righteous. You recognize there are things in this job that are going to cause you to bend morally. But you choose to take it because it's so alluring, because it's so attractive. You do that, you're moving off the course. You do that, you're moving outside of God's provision in his direction, his trajectory for you. You recognize that just in the the day-to-day living of life, things happen. Things happen, and we're given an option for how we might respond to that. We're engaged in conversation. We come to find out that somebody is is blasting us behind our back. They're, They're saying things about us that are just blatantly false. I mean, you've got a choice. How am I going to respond to that? Or you, you hear something about someone else and you say, look, I, you know, I hear that, that, that this person's doing this and they're engaging in this behavior. They're, they're playing fast and loose in their marriage. And you've got a choice for how you will respond to that. Will you seek to steer them back on the course or will you just say, let's just let them go out gracefully? See, part of running the race well is making sure other people finish with you. It's helping steer them back on the course. It's making sure that you stay on the course. It's making sure that, as we sang earlier, that you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, that you're taking all of the decisions you make, all the decisions that lay before you, and you're putting those at his feet, and you're praying, God, give me wisdom to know what's the right decision. God, give me wisdom to know what glorifies you the most. God, give me wisdom to know how to make this decision. God, surround me with people that love me enough to tell me when I'm doing something really stupid. God, help me to be humble enough that when they come to me and say, Matt, you're doing something stupid, that I don't just immediately disregard them, that I don't push them to the side, but I receive their counsel well. And that's what it is to finish the race. Paul says that he has kept the faith. If you flip back over and you look at chapter one in verse eight, Paul writing to Timothy, he said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We recognize that Paul's life has been one of great difficulty, that Paul's life, he faced tremendous opportunity to denounced Christ to move away from faith. He could have done well. If he had stayed in his former way of life, he would have continued to advance. Financially, he would have been taken care of. He wouldn't have been an enemy of the state, and all these things would have gone well for him. 
but he was faced with choices over and over and over again. He made the daily choice, the hour by hour, the minute by minute decision to live a life that would glorify God. He chose to keep the faith. He chose to live a life that was honoring to God. Now let's look at the fallout of that in verse 8. Paul writes in verse 8, and he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Well, what is this crown for Paul? See, Peter writing of this crown in 1 Peter 1, 4, spoke of it as an inheritance. He says, it's imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading, and it is kept in heaven. This crown will not fade, it will not go away, it will not fall apart. Now, Paul is speaking in direct contradiction to those crowns when somebody would finish a race and that laurel, that wreath would be placed on their head. That thing was fresh cut. It wasn't going to be there for very long. It was going to brown. It was going to fade. It was going to deteriorate. It was going to fall apart. It wasn't going to be all that beautiful to wear in town for very long. But Paul said, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. So the question becomes, how? See, maybe you misread this text. Maybe you read through it and you say, this is what I have to do to be righteous. I've got to fight the good fight. I've got to run the race. And I've got to not shipwreck my faith. Maybe that's how you read it. And you read through it and say, look, this is what Paul is saying. This is what I've done. And so this is how I will be righteous. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me read verse 16 through 21. Paul writes and he says, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. <clears throat> Sorry, that would be in chapter 4 and that was going to be really confusing in just a second. Let me, let me shift a column. That was awkward. I'm going to shift a column. All right, this is going to make a whole lot more sense. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Listen to this. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He explains it in 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins, the things they did wrong against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that God gave us this message of hope. We share it to others and show them how they can be reconciled to God. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 21, for our sake, he made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul didn't merit, he didn't earn, he didn't gain righteousness because he had fought, because he had raised, because he had kept the faith. Paul got righteousness because in salvation, God reckoned Paul as righteous. 
This afternoon, I encourage you to go and read Romans chapter four. How was Abraham reckoned as righteous? In his belief, he was reckoned as righteous. See, we read this and we say, man, I can't do that. If you're anything like me, you think back over this previous week and you say, man, Matt, I I, I read through this and Paul says, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But I look back at my week and say, man, I, I was swinging at air, I was taking it right in the gut, I tripped, I didn't finish the race. And probably on two or three occasions, I... I don't know that you could rightly call what I've been doing keeping the faith. And so you read this and you're like, how do I get there? How do I understand this? Friend, you're not earning your righteousness. You're living in light of it. Friend, you're you're not doing things so that God will look at you and reckon you righteous. You're reckoned righteous because God looks at you and he sees Jesus Christ's blood covering your sins and your transgressions. And the reason you do these things, the reason that you seek to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith, isn't so that you might be righteous. It's because God has already established you as righteous. Do you see that key distinction? If we were to go to somebody as we knock on the doors and tell them, look, you've got to do these things, and then God will save you. We are leading them down a path of of works-based righteousness. We work because he has established us as righteous. We are obedient because he declares that we must be. We are obedient because we are moving in line with what he establishes us as. Not so that we look better. Not so that we might be righteous. But because we act in accordance with what we already are. Paul writes, he says, look, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. We recognize that the righteousness imputed to us from Christ is held in heaven by God. Peter wrote and he told us that it is imperishable, that it is unfading, that it is everlasting. God upholds that. He calls you to fidelity. He calls you to obedience. Absolutely. There's no place in the gospel for licentiousness. There's no place in the gospel for antinomianism. There's no place in the gospel for a lack of obedience on your part because you're living in accordance with what he has reckoned you to be. As a Christian, you're living out the implications of your salvation. As a Christian, you're living out the righteousness that God has given to you. And to do anything else, to live in any other way would be dishonoring. You just couldn't do that. That couldn't be the mainstay of your life, not for any length of time. So God is holding that for Paul. He says that that it is laid up for him the crown of righteousness. And who's doing it? He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. On the day of Christ's visitation, as we read about last week, on Christ's return, those crowns will be established. They will be given. They will be passed out. And Paul says, look, it's not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And so we ask ourselves, do we love his appearing? You see, one of the, one of the reasons that you and I fail to fight the good fight and to run the race and, and to keep the faith is because we're so caught up in all the things that are happening in our lives. Whether it's you, you keep time through, through soccer season or tax season or the fiscal year or, or television shows run, you, you're, you're programmed in some way 
to manage time and to recognize the passage of time through all of these temporary things. It's a great blessing for me that soccer season is only just a few months long. And this past Saturday when the game was rained out, I I haven't danced that hard in a long time. I was dancing before the game got rained out, and I like to think that's why it rained. But man, when when you get so preoccupied measuring your time on these short chunks of time, and so the time between Christmas, the time until summer, and the time of summer, you lose the vantage point of this eternal thinking. You lose the vantage point that was so prominent and it was so much easier in some sense for these New Testament Christians to focus on. And see, when pressure, when persecution hits, you want to escape. When pressure, when persecution hits, you want to know that an end is coming. But for many of us, we've grown too comfortable, we've grown too calm, too complacent. And we like the long pause. We like the time between his ascension and his coming back again. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, and this is something I struggle with. How do we live our lives in such a way that we live with anticipation for his coming again? How does that shape the way I make decisions? How does that shape the way that I, that I choose to do things? It's difficult to be a Christian. It's difficult to weigh out these decisions. It's difficult to take all of these things seriously and to find ourselves living our lives in such a way that we are living in accordance with the text. But that's the calling. He says, be holy as I am holy. If you have received Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sins, if you have received him as your savior and taken him on, he has imputed righteousness to you. He has reckoned you righteous. And the word to all of us who have done that is so live in him. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. And keep the faith. Let me pray for us.